Hey everyone, welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today we're joined by Democratic candidate for Illinois' 14th Congressional District, Lauren Underwood. Thanks for coming on, Lauren. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Of course, our pleasure. Let's go ahead and dive right in. I'm really curious, what inspired you to run for office? And if you could tell our listeners, what was your, if not me, who, and if not now, when, kind of moment? Sure. Uh, my name's Lauren Underwood. I'm running for Congress in my hometown. Uh, I grew up in this town called Naperville in northern Illinois. We're about 45 minutes west of Chicago. And uh, in this community, you know, I graduated from high school, went on to college, became a nurse, but I spent my career in public service. And so my first job outside of graduate school was working to implement the Affordable Care Act and then went on to join the Obama administration and worked in public health emergencies and disasters like Ebola, Zika, and the Flint water crisis. I was in Flint when the 2016 election happened, and I thought that we were going to be able to hand off all of our work on health reform and on these disaster responses like Flint to a team that cared. And when we got the Trump team, it became very clear that they just wanted to take away health care from Americans. And I didn't become a nurse to do that. Um, and so the first of those moments was when I decided to leave government and to return home. Illinois is a state that expanded Medicaid thanks to the Affordable Care Act. And so when I moved back, I got a job working for a Medicaid managed care company in Chicago. I found myself last spring at my congressman, Randy Holkren's one and only public event. It was a moderated question and answer session hosted by our local League of Women Voters. And because he had not been publicly accessible prior to that moment in the spring, um, the whole community came out. There were 800 so people who packed a theater to hear from our congressman. And this was during the time of the different uh, bills before the Congress seeking to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So that night, he, our congressman, made a promise. He said he was only going to support a version of Obamacare repeal that let people with pre-existing conditions keep their health care coverage. And that was important to me because obviously as a nurse, I know how critical it is for people with pre-existing conditions who need access to medications or procedures to get those things. I've worked on the Affordable Care Act, so I've read the law and I know that it works. And I know that we can fix what doesn't work. We don't have to just throw the whole thing away. And like so many Americans, I have a pre-existing condition myself. It's a heart condition that's well controlled, but it's one of those diagnoses where I wouldn't be able to get coverage under these repeal scenarios. So when he made that promise, I believed him because it was personal for me. Well, a week to 10 days later, he went and voted for the American Health Care Act, which is the aversion of repeal that did the opposite. It made it cost prohibitive, incredibly expensive for people like me to be able to get affordable health care coverage. And so I was angry, not because of the vote itself, because Randy Holkren has voted to repeal the ACA dozens of times. What I was upset about was that he didn't have the integrity to be honest with us the one time he planned to stand before our community. And that's not what a representative should do, right? They're supposed to be um, accessible and transparent about their votes and know that they're accountable to us, to the voters. And so he doesn't, you know, share those values, obviously. And so I said, you know what, it's on, I'm running. So I want to dive a little bit more into your experience working with the ACA and also as a nurse, because you have a unique perspective working both from 
the public policy perspective, but also being on the ground and, and working with the people directly affected. Do you think it was on the level? Do you think Republicans really approached it in a way that was um, honest and with integrity? Well, when the Affordable Care Act passed and there were several bills that were voted on in the lead up to the eventual passing of what we now know as the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, which passed on March 23rd, 2010, um, that was a bipartisan bill. And so all of the policymakers in Congress had an opportunity to shape, insert provisions, and to ultimately vote on the law. So the idea almost the recasting of the bill, that it was somehow some kind of democratic, liberal dream, and that it coasted through the Congress is incredibly untrue. And that there's a lot for um, Americans of all political persuasions to gain from the law. And I think that since the rollout, um, you know, President Obama took a lot of heat for the ACA, right? We saw that they, the Democrats lost the House in 2010 um, after you know some disgruntled conservatives voted out their Democratic members of Congress. Um, and so began the wave of the Tea Party movement. Uh, at the same time, there are millions of people, millions of people who have benefited from the law. And I've been surprised as I've gone around my Northern Illinois community at what provisions resonate with people. And so, as you'll recall, in 2017, almost every other month, there was a new repeal bill and that activists were constantly having to uh, maintain the high level of advocacy to keep the ACA. And we kept the law. It is not thanks to some bravery of one or two representatives in the Congress. They were hearing from the public and our complete demand that we have health care coverage. And that's why we have the law. So I will say, um, talking with folks in my community, I was surprised that the Medicaid expansion, for example, was so popular. Because I'm in a middle class, upper middle class community where we don't have a sizable Medicaid population. And what I heard from folks was that they liked the Medicaid provision because they know so many kids with disabilities. And they understand the role that Medicaid plays in supporting those children and making sure that they have high quality health care and excellent public education. And in a suburban environment, um, I think that we might just assume that people don't want this type of coverage um, or don't want, you know, government health care, if you will. But what I'm finding is that the law is popular. Um, and while people may not want to enroll themselves, they're grateful to have it as an option should they fall in hard times, um, decide to start an entrepreneurial venture, or their children need an option for healthcare coverage. And so it's popular. When, when you think about the future of healthcare in the United States, what is a system that you would like to see implemented more broadly? Sure. I think that our my first objective would be to stabilize the ACA when I get to Congress, because we have 37,000 people just in our district alone who are counting on that coverage. And I believe very firmly that whenever we start to turn our eye away from protecting the people who need health care today, that's when um, the Washington Republicans are successful in slipping in these repeal provisions. So I don't want 
to, I want to be very clear that um, our immediate objective needs to be ensuring that people who need healthcare coverage can get it. And while we as liberals, progressives, Democrats start to sketch out a framework for our ideal system, we cannot have a public conversation that starts to damage the ACA, in my opinion, because that creates an opening for a repeal bill, like what happened um, in the winter with the tax plan, right? And the individual mandate being mm -hmm. slipped in. Mm -hmm. So that being said, I think that we need to be aggressive in our efforts to reduce the number of uninsured Americans. Um, as we've seen, the the states and the governors have not all adapt, adopted the Medicaid expansion. And so we have millions of people who continue to go without coverage in this country. I do get excited about proposals, including a public option, including this idea of Medicare for all. Um, but what I hear in the community is that there is sort of a lack of precision. So people talk about single payer Medicare for all, and they say it really quickly and smush them together. <laughs> and, you know, in that conversation, I hear Medicare 55 and up, Medicare 40 and up, Medicare 18 and up, Medicare care at birth. And I think that as we talk about transforming our healthcare system, we sort of need to decide what it is that we want um, and, and sort of unify behind that. Uh, because the public conversation right now, I think, is grounded in values, meaning that healthcare is a human right, and people should be able to have access to high quality, affordable healthcare, and that no one should go broke trying to have a healthy and well life. And I agree with all those value statements, but I do think that um, the preponderance of um, options is a challenging national conversation. I agree with that. And, and I would just echo what you said by kind of reiterating those value statements ring true to me personally, but I think when you start throwing around all of the various options of what a healthcare system could look like, people do get confused and they do kind of mush them all together. Um, I wanna go from the macro a little bit more to the micro. Um, thinking about the opioid crisis, it really has begun to grow and it's, it has become an epidemic and the Trump administration really isn't taking it as seriously as they should. As a nurse, as a uh, potential member of Congress, how would you approach the opioid crisis compared to how the Trump administration is handling it? Sure, thank you. Um, I have two thoughts about it. The first is it's everywhere. And so we need to start treating um, addiction as the disease that it is and giving communities resources everywhere to combat it. So first, the United States has taken a predominantly law enforcement first approach to addiction. I think that we are more than overdue to shift that paradigm and start treating it as a mental health care issue. Um, and so in the United States, so often private health insurance plans are only required to cover uh, detox or rehab to treat addiction. This is problematic because an opiate addiction requires medical intervention for both detox and rehab. It's not like alcoholism where you might be able to detox at home and then enroll in a treatment facility for rehab. Um, oftentimes you need substantial medical intervention and oversight just to detox from the opioids. And so this is a problem um, that insurance coverage is not helping families at both stages because if a, if a family uses their benefit for the detox portion, then they're needing to pay out of pocket for rehab that can cost 
50,000 or more dollars. And so in our community, what we hear is that families are mortgaging their homes two or three times to get equity out, to be able to afford to send that loved one to rehab. Um, and that's in a community where people predominantly do have equity in their home. But for communities where people don't, all that's left after detox, and if they can't afford rehab, right, and someone relapses, they get caught up in that criminal justice system. And quite honestly, Nathan, I believe that we don't have enough drug courts in America to deal with the size of our opiate addiction crisis. And so my proposal is to require insurance companies to cover both. Um, and we know that that would help so many people get treatment, which we have a lot of evidence that treatment can work, um, but people need to have an opportunity to enroll. I'll say the second thing that we need to do is to stop awarding funds to communities on a competitive grant basis. What does that mean exactly? So there's an agency at HHS called SAMHSA, and they provide grant support to communities, states, counties, um, based on demonstrated need. So in our 14th district, we have seven counties. One of those seven counties doesn't have a hospital, okay? It's called Kendall County in Illinois. And so if someone overdoses at home, they get bound, you know, someone calls 911, and they get taken by ambulance to the nearest hospital, which is in the city of Aurora, Illinois, in Kane County. They're declared dead in Kane County. So Kane County gets that death on record for their county. So not in Kendall County where the person actually overdosed and died and was using. So this is a problem because Kane County with the hospital has an inflated number of deaths on record as compared to Kendall County. And so Kane gets the resources and Kendall County doesn't because these communities are forced to compete with each other. Um, and I think that this system was designed in the era of, quote, the war on drugs, where you had maybe urban centers that had an inflated, you know, a, a higher number of drug users and maybe had different needs to combat addiction. Um, that is no longer the case in this country. I believe that every community is being touched by this um, opiate epidemic. And so we need to give communities, all communities, the resources that they need to effectively combat um, this issue. So now I want to transition a little bit away from values and issues and talk a little bit more about your campaign. Could you tell our listeners what it's like to run for Congress as a young Black woman and the, the hurdles that you've had to overcome? Sure. So it's a trip. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way I can describe it. I, I say it's two things. Well, first of all, it's very difficult. Um, it's sort of like being on a stair stepper and for like an hour, right? And so you feel like you have walked off up a mountain and at the end of the day, you haven't actually moved. Mm. So in one hand, it's kind of like that. The other hand, I think it sort of harkens back to like middle school. Like, do they like me? <laughs> do they like me? If I do this, will they like me if, mm -hmm. if I do that, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's not, I feel like we've definitely moved out of that stage in life. So it's interesting in a political sense, you know, trying to just gauge public support for different issues. But I will say that it's been, um, it's been a great learning experience, so fun. Um, and I think that the country is 
so excited to hear our voices as millennials. Um, I'm 31, so I'm definitely a millennial. And I think that, you know, they're kind of been waiting for our leadership. And so often we think that, oh, you know, we need another big job or another title, or we need to be more stable or purchased a home or gotten married or whatever to be able to step forward and um, lead. And I don't think that that's the case. I will say that running for Congress specifically is less linear than probably um, county board or city council in terms of like the steps uh, involved. Obviously campaigns for Congress are, you know, might be over a year um, by the time the general election comes, which is oftentimes much longer than, you know, state and local um, level elections. Um, and so that just requires different types of resources, different staffing structures. Um, I've since left my job. And so, you know, that's been sort of interesting the way that it sort of intersects with life. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we'll be very successful um, because I'm sort of uniquely positioned to speak to issues in our community. I try to do a little bit of research and I know it looks like Emily's List has given you their endorsement and you are a fellow at the arena. Um, can you talk a little bit about what these endorsements mean and if you've gotten any other and, and how that affects the campaign? Sure. Endorsements are so critical. The first uh, major institutional supporter that endorsed our race was Senator Kirsten Gillibrand through her Off the Sidelines PAC. And what that endorsement did in September before our first filing period was offered institutional validation from a very popular sitting member of Congress to say that Lauren Underwood is the type of leader that we need is so important. And candidates of color, um, women and young candidates often don't get that type of early institutional validation. Um, and so that was huge for us. Um, the arena's support has been invaluable because they are not only offering, you know, um, a small contribution, but they also have provided our campaign with um, a team of advisors that provide that strategic direction um, and advice that helps us navigate, again, this nonlinear process of running for Congress. Um, they have coached um, me on storytelling on um, public messaging, on fundraising at scale, and it's been uh, tremendous. What Emily's List support did was as the only woman in my race, they have been a tremendous validator and almost um, stamp of approval that I am a pro-choice democratic woman who is right on all the issues related to women's rights, but then also who is running an incredibly viable campaign. And they um, have been such a source of um, information and resources, and I am grateful to have their support. Other endorsers include the Congressional Black Caucus, which represents 90, I'm sorry, 49 um, sitting members of Congress. Um, We've been endorsed by the National Now PAC, the National Organization of Women, uh, who support 
um, has been tremendous again among women who have been number one, our strongest uh, source of support in the community. They women have run the resistance. Millions of women have been marching in the women's march, and so women have been this sort of galvanizing force of our campaign. And so I'm grateful to have the support of these women's groups. Um, there's also, I would say, a suite of African American organizations like the Collective Pack and Higher Heights for America, mm-hmm. who um, are interested in providing early stage financial financial support for African American candidates at all levels. And that's important because so often we uh, don't have the networks within our internal Black community to support um, candidates for office at scale and early on, right? And so Black, I think Black donors are used to contributing to church and are used to contributing to charity, but not necessarily to political office. Um, And as the country's demographic shift where African-Americans no longer only live in those urban um, centers, majority minority districts, and now we live all across the country like my Northern Illinois district. Um, It's incredibly important to have organizations like those two in particular as available resources for candidates as we launch our campaign. So when you think about these endorsements, you've mentioned that it gives you validity, it helps give you momentum, it builds financial support. And recently you've started to get some more national media recognition. You were on MSNBC before the State of the Union and you were featured amongst many other women on the cover of Time magazine. Has this national spotlight changed the way you've approached your campaign or has it added any extra pressure? I would not say the national media has added extra pressure. Um, We were able to secure so many of these media placements with the help of these endorsing organizations, including one group, Square One Politics, which is a resource for millennial candidates specifically um, who are running in Republican held seats. And so if anyone's listening, please take a look at Square One Politics as a resource for your campaign. Um, I will say that national media is an incredible validator um, because in my community, the 14th district has not necessarily in previous years gotten the type of national attention as a flippable swing district. And so when I'm able to speak to the American people about the opportunities, yes, to take back the House or DACA or the government shutdown or the like, it says not only, wow, she's a valid, strong candidate, but also that there's something interesting happening in the 14th district. And they have um, a leader in that community who is able to speak to issues, not just Um, in her Northern Illinois region, but speak to me in Colorado or in California or in Mississippi or in Florida in a way that's resonant. And that type of leadership is um, part of what it will take. That type of national conversation around these swing districts is part of what it will take, I think, to flip the house. Um, Because to win those 24 seats that the Democrats need to take the majority, it will require hyper-local campaigns and candidates who are focused on their districts, but it will also require the engagement of Democrats across our country. And uh, what we're doing is beginning that conversation now. So you mentioned hyper-local campaigns really qualified candidates. If people are local and they're listening, how can folks find out more about you, get involved with your campaign, 
or even contribute financially if they're in a position? Yes. So we are on social media, um, on Facebook at Underwood for Congress, uh, and Twitter at L Underwood 630. I would invite you to sign up for our email list on our website at underwoodforcongress.com. Uh, our primary election is on March 20th, so less than 10 days away. And so we are in the middle of our go time crunch period now. And so if you wanna get involved in a very exciting race, um, please take a look at what we're doing here in the Illinois 14th Congressional District. I do invite all of your listeners to contribute and support our campaign. Um, and you can do that online at underwoodforcongress.com. Every day I wake up, and get an email with, um, you know, the contributions that came in the night prior. And we get every day, 65 cents, $1.87, $2.15, thanks to small dollar donors across our district and across the country. And it's really those small dollar contributions that power our race. Um, One anecdote I'd like to share is the day that Doug Jones won the won the Senate seat in Alabama, there was a lot of activity on Twitter. And there's a lot of activity around thanking black women who showed up in droves to push Doug Jones over the edge um, and claim victory. There is a man who I don't know personally, his name is Jeff Yang, shout out to Jeff. Jeff said, instead of thanking black women, let's support the black women who are stepping forward to run for office. And he worked with Act Blue, which is that democratic uh, political donation platform to set up a page with 30 some black women running for office. And I had no clue this was happening. The next morning I woke up to again, all these small dollar donations who came in across the country. And that is just an example of a small act that a citizen can do to support candidates. And it's been huge. We've raised hundreds of dollars through that link at this point and have connected with um, supporters across the country who would have never heard about our race and um, who are interested in sort of changing the face of leadership in this country and bringing different voices to our tables. And so I'm grateful to have his support and all the support of people across our district and across the country. Awesome. That's a great, compelling story and a, and a good place to wrap. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Nathan. It's been such a treat. We hope to have you back on when you are the nominee and again, when you are a member of Congress. Oh, I'd be happy to. Thank you. <laughs> of course. All right. And everyone listening, thank you so much for tuning in. Again, my name is Nathan Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Nathan H. Rubin. Check us out, Millennial Politics at Millen Politics. Visit our website, millennialpolitics.co. Check out our merchandise in our store and stay tuned for our next episode.